You are listening to The Christian Commute, a commute-length podcast about Christian apologetics, theology, and other matters of Christian interest. Here is your host, Seth Dunn. It is Thursday, October 19th. This is The Christian Commute. I am your host, Seth Dunn, and you are riding home with me. And no, I did not upload Monday's show yet. I want to tell you this, I'm not going to, well, I can't say that I won't upload today's show because who knows what I might do, but I'm on the way to soccer practice and it's a long night because we have two of them and then Friday, I'm not coming back home, I'm going to stay with my friend in Chattanooga. And we're going to go to the Alabama game from there. So it may be Sunday before this week's episodes, especially the Friday one, get uploaded. There's a, I mean, there's maybe a 20% chance I upload this episode and Monday's episode when I get home tonight. But my son wants to walk the dog with me, so I might do that instead. I would rather walk the son with walk the dog with my son than upload my my show for my beloved audience because you know I really like this show because that's what I do every day because that's what's going on with me. Roll Tide. Uh, I got I to text brother William to get the Alabama Tennessee pick because I am going to do a Friday show on the way to Chattanooga. So I, sh- I haven't done one in a while. And I, I need to get that pick. I, a lot of people may not care about that little segment of the show, but I do. Because I just like to imagine all my fans are Baptist Alabamas. Baptist Alabama fans. Everybody who follows my show, you're not my fans. And I, I, no one would be a fan of some guy who podcasts about the Bible in his car. But I do just imagine this City of God type uh, thing on earth, the Christian commute listeners, a virtual city of God, and everybody is a Baptist, and everybody is an Alabama fan. Wouldn't, I mean, this is this heaven on earth. Maybe that's what it'll be in the New Jerusalem, where I'll be Baptists, and I will, I will be there. What are you going to do when you get to heaven, Seth? I'm going to baptize all the Presbyterians for one, and then, you know, we'll put together an Alabama team, and that's, that we'll play Alabama. We'll just play Alabama-Tennessee games forever. All right, that's my eschatology. Baptize, number one, baptize all the Presbyterians. Number two, Alabama-Tennessee game every year. All right. That's the only thing we need to take with us to heaven in the New Jerusalem is Dreamland Barbecue in Alabama-Tennessee. Maybe I'll have a girls' soccer team. I'm only 41. I don't need to be thinking about the end just yet. And by the way, I'm not talking about in heaven. I'm talking about the New Jerusalem and the resurrection. Some people think, oh, I'm going to go to heaven. Okay, but you're going to be resurrected to a new heavens and new earth. Understand that. Okay. I'm not talking about having Alabama, Tennessee in heaven. I'm talking about having Alabama, Tennessee in the, the new heavens and the new earth. Okay. I don't know if it's all going to be one big Jerusalem or if we're still going to have Alabama and Tennessee. But who knows? But we better have Alabama Tennessee football. 
All right, today's show title is Vetting Missions Opportunities. Vetting Missions Opportunities. And finally, finally, somebody wrote in. I've been sitting here begging for questions, and then Candace wrote in, and then I complained at her. Because she writes to my Yahoo account. I have a Yahoo account. There's very few things that I send to my Gmail account. I want the Gmail account to be, if you will, special. Because there's a bunch of junk that goes to that Yahoo account. But I, I often use the Yahoo account for personal correspondence. Because I've had it for longer. And Candace sent me a mason apron the other day. And, uh, not the other day, it was, it was a few months, like a year ago. And she, I think she asked me on Facebook if I wanted it, so I said, yes, I will email you my address, and I sent it from Yahoo. So now when she tries to write Seth, it goes on Yahoo. And I was like, Candace, this is the wrong address. It's SethDunn88 at gmail.com. SethDunn88 at gmail.com. So that's what, that's what happens. When I beg, I get my way in the middle. You didn't, you didn't do it right. You sent her the wrong address. Her question is about the Holy Spirit, specifically Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And we'll get to that after we do the Bible chapter review. I don't think we'll finish this Bible chapter, or this, not parable. I think it is the end of the chapter. We're talking about the sheep and the goats and the separation. I think we'll have it Friday and then maybe Tuesday to finish. So if you will remember, Jesus, or the king in the story, has just told the sheep, go to my right, sheep, because I was hungry and you fed me, and I was sick and in jail and you visited me. I was, I was naked and you clothed me. He tells them all this. So then Jesus is going to tell us about, starting in verse 37, verse 38, Verse 30, or sorry, verse 37, verse 38, and verse 39. Jesus is going to tell us the reaction that the righteous will have when, when God says this to them. When Jesus, who is the Son of God, and he is God, says, says this to them. Then the righteous will answer him, answer the king. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? Oh, you know what? I feel bad. Uh, I stopped at a yellow light I could have made because I wanted to focus on the, the verse. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it for me. Because going back to what we were talking about yesterday, when does a king ever need clothes from you or food and water for you or for you to visit him in jail? He's the king and he, he really decides who's in the jail. But they're saying, well, when do we do this? Because they didn't, they didn't have anything to give the king. Because the king wasn't in need. They never did it. And Jesus says, no, when you do it to the least of my brethren, you do it to me. And this goes back. This is not a new theme in the Gospel of Matthew. Remember, Jesus said, whoever wishes to be greatest in the kingdom 
needs should be the least. We talked about that when the disciples were saying, well, who should be at your right and left side? And Jesus says, that's not the way to think in the kingdom. There's not one brother more important than another. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't seek to be the king of Christianity. Oh, that's a better than Ezra song. God save the king of Christianity. That's not really a better than Ezra song. But there is God save the king in New Orleans. I think it's about a homosexual prostate prostitute. I wouldn't want to be a homosexual prostitute, but I wouldn't want to be a homosexual prostate either, for obvious reasons. Um, anyway, what do I mean? See, it just happens. I get off on these tangents. There's, there's no king of Christianity. Sorry, Pope. Sorry, Pope, whatever your name is right now. Pope Francis is one now. There's no king of Christianity. And those of us, I, I'm not talking about, let me just say the phrase. Those of us with great wealth and great power should not feel themselves any better or any greater than those of us without great wealth and great power. And I don't mean to say those of us with great wealth and, and great power talking about me as a part of the clash of rich people. When I say those of us, I say I'm talking about the kingdom, all the Christians. So there's rich people, middle class people, and poor people. So what the king is saying, you did give these things out, but you gave these things to needy Christians. You showed them fellowship, brotherhood, love, charity, concern. And the thinking of that day would have been, if I have something to give, I'm going to give it to the king. Because then I get favor from the king. I'm not going to give it to who needs it. I'm going to curry favor myself with uh, curry favor for myself by greasing the wheels. Who's gonna Who's gonna hand Alabama tickets out to the poor? Right? If you got somebody uh, at work, if you got a tennis ticket to the Tennessee game. You're gonna you're gonna give it to somebody who can do something for you. This I mean this is this is the deal with uh, purchasing and salesmen. I miss being the purchasing manager because somebody was always taking me to Longhorn or giving me a Christmas tree and a bunch of funnel cakes at a, one of these two expensive farms in uh, well, this was in Cobb County. You, you, you guys, you've seen this agro-tourism industry pop up. I hate agro-tourism. I'm not going to talk about it all the time. But the people from whom I bought my European shipping. And get this. The, I, I didn't pick them. Somebody else did. Long before I took the job. And they always had pretty decent performance and, and price as compared to everybody else. They were just being, you know, you think, you know, I'm just picking you because it's the right thing. Yeah, but they, that's not how this goes, right? That's not the reason they're doing it. They want to buy your time and your influence. So they always have your ear, and that goes for every supplier. So now, uh, like just a workaday uh, plebeian person, I have to buy my own Christmas tree at Pike's Nursery where I used to bought it before I, buy it before I was an entitled purchasing manager. Now I'm paying for the $70 tree instead of the $100 tree because the agro-tourism place, Copper Creek, that's not Copper Creek Farms, that's in Adairsville, 
I can't remember the name of it. But uh, they didn't even grow the trees there. It was just a tree lot out in the middle of nowhere. It was, it was stupid. But they And the trees were overpriced. But I got it for free. And we had a party. We had a party. It was a catered party. So all that to say is people were giving me stuff because they wanted me to do for them and remember them. So you give usually from a worldly perspective not to people who need but to people who can do something for you. A naked guy can't do anything for you. He doesn't even have clothes for himself. A guy who doesn't have any... Listen, water falls out of the sky. It's sitting around in creeks and rivers. I, obviously, they didn't have water treatment and indoor plumbing like we do now. But in this part of the world, uh, you, especially at that time, you can have some difficulty finding water. Uh, but if you ain't got water, you, you ain't got nothing. All right, so I just don't let that pass you. Well, I'm, you know, you, oh, I was thirsty and somebody gave me something to drink. Like, I was thirsty today and I had one Coke in my refrigerator and I got it. And if somebody had said, hey, are you thirsty? Here's a Coke. I'd have been really appreciative. But it wouldn't have been, you know, I'm not desperate. You can't be any, literally, you cannot be any poorer than if you don't have water. I would rather have water than clothes. Because you can live if you're naked. Adam and Eve did for a long time. Of course, I think they were immortal before the fall. But you know what I'm saying. So certainly the king never needs water. If there's one glass, one bucket, because I don't think they had glass. If there's one bucket or pot of water left, the king's going to have it. So Jesus is talking about things you do for people in extreme poverty out of charity not things that you would do for a king and he's saying it's like doing it to the king when you do it to the least of his brethren or least of his subjects now so you don't misunderstand this verse doing something for any given poor person does not equate to doing it to Jesus. Because poor people are not Christ's brethren. The elect are Christ's brethren. The sheep are Christ's brethren. That's not to say don't do anything for goats or people who may be goats. That's not to say don't have a say a missions feeding ministry and say oh sorry this is the church this is the church meal night for poor people, yes, but only Christian poor people. You're unregenerate, so I'm not going to give you any soup. I'm not, that is not what I'm saying. But think about something from, say, a governmental perspective. Somebody who's more on the left. Not even necessarily a, a liberal Democrat, but just somebody who's more of a communitarian person who thinks it's okay to tax one group of people's money and then give it everybody okay now if you think that's best you think that's best I'm not making a political statement about tax policy but what I'm saying is don't say well this is my policy of giving welfare to people is biblical and from the Bible because 
Whatever you do to the least of my brethren, you do unto Jesus. Well, everybody in America or Georgia or whatever state you're in isn't one of Christ's brethren. Only those who are adopted as sons of the Father are Christ's brethren. So this is a verse that can be twisted and has been twisted outside of the context of God's kingdom. Another one, not that we're talking about this verse right now, is being your brother's keeper. Nowhere in Genesis does it say, be your brother's keeper. Abel impresses God. Cain ticks God off. God says, sin is crouching over your door, but you better, or at your door, you better master it. Cain murders Abel. God comes to ask Abel, or sorry, ask Cain, where's Abel, and what does Cain say? Am I my brother's keeper? Cain's definitely the bad guy in the story, but we're not taking the antithesis of what he says. Well, the lesson of the story is to be your brother's keeper. No, the lesson is you're wicked. If you murder your brother, you've got to control your sin. That's what happens after the fall. It's nobody else's fault that you don't please God. And you need to focus on pleasing God rather than hating the people who do. This is a book written to an agrarian culture. Am I my brother's keeper? Listen, if you asked a farmer or a shepherd, where, is, where are your sheep? They're on the pasture to the left. Where's your, where's your cows? They're getting milked in the barn. And the, the animals have names. Where's Bessie? Barn number one. Over there. Where's Lizzie? She's visiting the Borden factory. Does it, does anybody, does it bother anybody else when you see the, the Borden milk trucks with the cow on the back? That's, that's clearly a female cow because she has anthropomorphized big long ash, eyelashes. And I think the name of the cow is Elsie, not Lizzie. But she's got, she got a flower... I don't know, it's a necklace, a collar, garland. She has a flower garden, garland on. And she has long eyelashes like a female. And then her name is Elsie, but she has, she has horns. Like, why does your female cow have horns? And it's not from the woke transgender movement. It's been that, that way ever since I was little. I don't get it. But what I'm saying is, Cain is saying to God, I don't, I don't care. I'm not in charge of him. He's not an animal on my farm. He's not my pet dog. I'm not his keeper. Why should I know where he is? And he's lying because he knows where he is because he killed him. He's right where he left him. Bleeding out and dying on the ground. And God says, his blood screams out to me from the ground. In other words, I already know where he is. And then people say, well, I'm going to be my brother's keeper. That doesn't make you the opposite of Cain. He wasn't his brother's keeper before he killed him. And that's not the moral of the story. It's somebody twisting a Bible phrase to look good. And people will do with this too. Guys, you've got to look for the whole of Scripture, especially the book. Because this book is teaching, be the least. Be the least. The, the least in the kingdom of God is great. He gives. Jesus has talked about it. And he's given that lesson again, saying the way you demonstrate your faith 
is not by kissing up to the king, but giving to the brethren. The prudent virgin, the faithful servants, take care of the kingdom in the absence of the king. Instead of running wild like Hulkamania while he's gone and having a grand old time. Because I, I think it's in Luke. Either Mark or Luke, we get this same story and they say, Oh, oh Lord, didn't we, uh, didn't we prophesy in your name? Did we do this in your name? We did this in your name? And he doesn't care. Depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Into the fire, prepared. What, 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 what? He doesn't care. Because that's you trying to do something for him, but you're not looking after everybody. We're all equal in the kingdom. And we serve the king by serving one another. I got into such a groove that I forgot to answer Candace's question. So I'm actually recording this the next morning. I think what happened was that I got so used to not having a show question that I just kept doing like I'd been doing before. But I am very thankful to have the question, and I will now answer it. So Candace from Wisconsin writes in is it Wisconsin or Minnesota I get these these states these big lake states up north with uh, the Lutheran Swedish background confused I'm pretty sure it's Wisconsin Wisconsin I've been to Wisconsin to Green Bay at the Bret Hart uh, not Bret Hart and at the Bret Favre Steakhouse, and it was really good. It was also freezing, freezing cold. Because it was after football season. Like February or something like that. It was just punishing. But you, that's not the question. It's not about how punishing Wisconsin is. It's about the Holy Spirit. And if you have a question about theology or apologetics, you can send it to SethDunn88 at Gmail. Dot com. That is SethDunn88 at gmail.com. Or you can dial... Well, I forgot the number. Go back and listen to another show. Maybe I'll have the 470... I'm blanking on it. I'm going to have to retire from the show soon because I'm over 40 and I, I just can't operate anymore. I forget things. Hopefully I don't forget this answer, because I was all prepared to give it to you yesterday. Candace says, I th yeah, actually she didn't say anything. She didn't really ask a question, I should say that. She made a statement. So the Bible teaches, and the church teaches, at least the right church teaches, we can't lose our salvation, and thus... We shouldn't be able to lose the Holy Spirit, right? Because when you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. 
And the saints persevere. You can't lose your salvation. So you shouldn't be able to lose the Holy Spirit, right? But what about Psalm 51.10? Where David says, Don't cast me away from your presence. And do not take the Holy Spirit from me. So David, in writing Psalm 51, clearly feels that he can lose the Holy Spirit. So what is it? Can we lose the Holy Spirit or not? Short answer is no, you can't lose it. But now let me talk long about why. Hold on a second. Now I don't know where to turn. I think I have to turn left and go back this way. Hold on, I gotta pause. I'm at my assistant coach's house. And I'm in a part of town that I've never been to before. So let me pause. Pause the show. Okay. I was, in fact, going the right the right way. 470-315-0875. Takes the old brain synapses a little longer than they used to to fire. Now let's go back to Psalm 51. I think we would say the genre of this is wisdom literature. It's poetry, definitely. But it's part of the wisdom literature in the Bible. You're talking... I gotta turn the navigation lady off. This is an abject disaster. I forgot to record the the answer to the show topic. Forgot the phone number. And now got lost. Very bad. Very bad. The wisdom literature in the Bible consists of Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Job. I think Lamentations qualifies too, but I'd have to look that up. So, this is poetry. This is a poem being written. And the poem is about David's sin with Bathsheba. Subsequent conviction and repentance of that sin and the restoration of his relationship with God. And I think, I don't know, but I think this poem was written after the fact. I don't think while he's going through the process of repentance that he's sitting there writing this poem. I think he's looking back on what happened and how he felt and memorializing his reconciliation in poetic form. So I don't think when he's writing the Psalms, he's making, trying to make a theological statement about whether you can lose the Holy Spirit or not. And by the way, by the way, I don't think Old Testament Jews even had a concept of the Trinity. They knew there was one God. But we don't see the Trinity fleshed out. Yeah, that's a pun. Fleshed out that there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit until New Testament times.
David's just writing about how he felt at the time and what he was in danger of losing, and I'll get to that in a second. So, in the New Testament, we are taught in various places that the Holy Spirit comes to live in us in some mystical way after our salvation, our salvation experience, after we get saved. Okay, they didn't use that language, but we do. And we can never lose the Holy Spirit for the reasons we already talked about. Why then is David uh, uh, afraid of having the Holy Spirit taken from him? I think he says, your Holy Spirit. And the Jews know God is spirit. Because in the Old Testament, not everybody had the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, if I don't go, the Holy Spirit won't come. And I think, I think the Greek he was using there is paraclete, which is with a helper. But if I don't go, the helper, which we know to be the Holy Spirit, won't come. Well, in the Old Testament, Jesus hasn't even come yet. He exists as the eternal part of the Trinity, the Son. He exists, but he, he hasn't come yet in that he, the incarnation hasn't happened. But he says he's going away, going to go away, so the Holy Spirit comes. So when you look at people in the Old Testament, you're talking about anointings, which could or could not be permanent anointings of the Holy Spirit. David was anointed by Samuel to be the king. Samuel was God's prophet. He was a judge. Off the top of my head, I can't even ever remember if it says, the Bible, that Samuel was anointed or if anybody anointed him. But Samuel, as a prophet and a judge, he has the Holy Spirit too. He's anointed for it. David was anointed to be the king. You know who else was anointed to be the king before David? Saul. Saul prophesied. For this reason, they say, is, is Saul among the prophets? That's what the scripture says. And Saul, indeed, was anointed to be king. He disobeyed God in several ways. And because of his sin... And because of his disobeying God, he lost his anointing. In fact, the Bible says that God sent evil spirits to torment Saul. That's why he would act erratic towards the end of his life. And when David had a chance to kill Saul, he said, I will not touch God's anointed. So here David gets in a situation where he, like Saul, has been anointed for a special purpose by God empowered to do so by the Holy Spirit. And David sins. Nathan comes and calls him out. 
after David tried to cover up his sin through murder. He didn't murder, he didn't stab or shoot Uriah himself, but he put him in a position where somebody else would kill him. So acted, David acted in bad faith towards Uriah and got him killed while Uriah was acting in good faith, I might add. Having been called out on this by Nathan, who uses a consistency trap. We talked about the other day. David, Nathan said, what about a guy who did this? And, and David's like, bring him to me. He should be punished. And what's Nathan say? You are that man. And then David is torn, cut to the quick, if you will, and he repents. And he still, he still suffers a punishment. His baby dies. The baby who was conceived through his adultery with Bathsheba. But he says, don't cast me out of your presence. And David's a guy who writes scripture, right? David, David is a man after God's own heart. So he doesn't want God to reject him. By the way, I don't know, I wouldn't say the whole Psalm 51 includes elements of parallelism. But certainly Psalm 51, I think, is this 10 or 11? I think it's 11, but it might be 10. Certainly this couplet contains an element of parallelism. Being cast away from God's presence would have, at the same time, God taking the Holy Spirit from David. David has seen another king lose the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying... Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Because that would be God rejecting him. So think about this. God rejected Saul. And it was devastating for Saul. And what David is saying, don't reject me. So when he says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, what he's saying is, don't reject me. So now we're going to the New Testament. Does God reject any true converts? The answer is no. He holds them in his hand. No one can take them from him. They persevere. They are sealed to the day of redemption. Sealed. How are they sealed? Aren't they sealed by the Holy Spirit? Because God has put his spirit on them as a seal. So when something's sealed, that's it. It's sealed until the whoever's supposed to open it opens it. So we know from New Testament Scripture that Christians can't be rejected by God because they're sealed. In the Old Testament times, they did not have, I should say everybody, every Old Testament saint did not have the Holy Spirit as their paraclete. Only those specifically anointed. And like Saul, you could, you could lose that anointing of the Holy Spirit. So there you go. That's what David was saying. And we should not, we should not take this passage to mean that you can lose your Holy Spirit. 
We gotta understand the poem and why the poem was written. You read a poem like a poem, you read an epistle like an epistle. A lot more literally. And by the way, this is not what some would call abrogation. I'm sure you've seen or heard from critics of, of Islam that, well, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute before we go much further. Give me a dime so I can call my mother. If you read the Koran, the Koran's not true. Come on, baby, read the Bible. If you want to get saved, just kneel down and repent. Don't live on in your sins. Sorry. I, I said, hold on a minute, and it just came out. Little Rod Stewart. And that song, I mean, God, good grief. It's about fornication. It seems like a one-night stand with somebody that Rod Stewart just met. And then... She's like, hold on, let me call my mother. Cause to let my mom, I'm not going to be. Let my mom know I'm not going to be home. Give me a dime so I can call my mother. Nowadays, she would text her mom. Mom, I'm a monster slut. I'm staying at Rod Stewart's house. He's out of milk and coffee though. We'll have to go get some breakfast. No, no, we'll have to. We'll have to. Uh, we'll have to watch the early movie. <laughs> like, who in the world calls their mom and like, hey, mom? I'm not going to be home because I'm out sleeping around. And what was I talking about before? I was talking about a Rod Stewart. If you have any questions about the moral implications of the characters in disco songs, feel free to write in to SethDunn88 at gmail.com or dial 470-315-0875. The Christian Commute is your musical roadside assistance from Rod Stewart to, to Fleetwood to Pearl Jam. <sighs> Do you know what? You want to know something? If you, if you Candace will allows me, allow me a rabbit trail. Offensive music from the world does not nearly burn me up as 66% of what I hear at any given church. You're supposed to be worshiping God set apart on his set apart day and they're doing the Hillsong junk. If I want to say this thing, it, Andy Stanley has it right. Mark down the day that I said this. Andy Stanley has it right. If you want to just not give a flying flip about the holiness of the church and make everything seeker sensitive to a bunch of you know half goat half sheeps, I know that's not a thing. If you just want to make non-Christians come to church so they can boil like a frog in water, do what Andy Stanley does and just play secular rock music with your professional musicians. And I'll tell you this, everybody would know the words to that. I, I went to pick my brother up at the airport last night. And I was, I was sort of sleepy. I mean, it was... I think I got there 11... 45. I was I was pretty late getting him. I got delayed. So I got I got some caffeine, a caffeinated beverage from McDonald's on the way. And then I turned on the album The Long Run by the Eagles. And I sang that whole thing. Some parts better than others. 
because I, I can't hit the high stuff. Ooh, someone's right behind you, in between the dark and the light. Whoa, 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 ooh, swear I'm gonna find you, coming right behind you. One of these nights, one of these days, do, 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 do. One of these lost and lonely days, do, 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 do. I, I, knew, I knew almost every word, and I sang the whole album. Wouldn't I, if I was a goat, going to a seeker-sensitive church, if they just played some nice songs from the Eagles, provided I'm not Jeffrey Lebowski, if they just played some nice songs from the Eagles, I would be just as pumped up, and I would actually sing. Then you're sitting there, heaven meets earth with a sloppy wet kiss, and like, even goats know that's weird. If if you're gonna play, if you're gonna just outright reject the holiness of God, give me a give me a Coldplay song, not some band trying to sound like Coldplay. All right, rant over. All the way. I, I, hold on, rant continue. Don't do that. Rant over. I have absolutely no idea, no idea. What a disaster. No idea what I was talking before I started. So I went. I drove to the airport and I listened to the Eagles. For some reason, I was talking about the Psalm. Psalms are songs, and I was like, I listened to the Eagles last night. I was tired. The Long Run's a great album. I might listen to it again today. You cannot lose. The Holy Spirit, because that's what the Bible... Abrogation. Wow, I was talking about abrogation. How did I get there? Anyway, if you read Islam or read the Quran, now I remember what happened. I said, hold on a minute, and then 10 minutes was gone. If you read the Quran, the first part, the first part will say, do ABC. And then the second part will say, don't do ABC. And what the Islamic religious leaders and scholars say is like, well, this is abrogation. They were supposed to do this earlier, and then what they were supposed to do was abrogated by a later revelation in the Quran. Which I don't really understand how that could happen according to their mythology, because didn't Gabriel give it to Muhammad all at once? He didn't do it like, all right, Come back in six months and we're going to change it. And it's hard for me to believe that the people who faked the Quran, namely Muhammad, I, I'm, I am certain there was a demon involved pretending to be Gabriel. That's really how I feel about it. Because I, I am not an anti-supernaturalist. If you're an anti-supernaturalist, you don't believe that angels appear to anybody. So you think, well, obviously this isn't true because there, you know, there's no God. Even if you're a deist, you're not going to believe this. So, clearly the guy made it up. But I have the option, as a supernaturalist, as a theist, to say, alright, he could have made it up, but he also could have been fooled by a demon, or possessed by a demon, when he did it. I would like to think, I don't know why I would like to think this, Just I guess because it makes sense, that, that demons... Being uh, having been around for a long time, would be a little more cagey, and would not contradict themselves when when they're making up fake scripture. I could see some dude 
who I think he was illiterate doing it, forgetting what he said. They also have abrogation in Mormonism because you used you used to could have five or six wives. And then all of a sudden you weren't supposed to do that anymore. And five or six wives made sense for their whole God of your own planet model. Now it's just one. And that, that was clearly a societal reaction. And one day when sexuality becomes more relaxed and we're, you know, we're like, oh, we're polyamory and, you know, we're, we're throupling or whatever stuff they do now. I'm polyamorous. We're a thruple. Uh, so, as that becomes mainstream, they may go back to that. Who knows? But basically, the prophet, what he says goes, it's straight from God. And that was abrogated. Some people think that, are, that there are commands in Scripture, in the Bible, that are abrogated. And to that I say, no, that's wrong. Because there was an old covenant and a new covenant. And the old covenant things were fulfilled in Christ. So it's not that those things are abrogated. It's that they're, they're fulfilled. It's the difference between winning a football game and then it's done. And that game is finished forever. And then you play a football game. But it turns out that they discovered five years later that you were paying your football players uh, in free cars. Think about uh, Eric Dickerson at uh, Southern Methodist University. You can give them free cars now. You couldn't back then. And they say, well, we're we're going to retroactively forfeit your wins. They're abrogated. You lost. I know you won the game while you're on the field, but now your wins are retroactively canceled and forfeited. That's more... I don't know if it's a perfect analogy, but that's more attuned to abrogation. Old Covenant, New Covenant, be like you, you played a football game. You won the football game. Then, in the offseason, the rules committee changed some of the rules because the old ones were, you didn't need them anymore. And then you played another football game over those rules. Right? Last year's game wasn't wrong. And this year's game doesn't abrogate or change the rules to last year. God didn't change his mind. God set up a plan and fulfilled it in Christ. So when we're talking about people in the Old Old Covenant, Old Testament saints like David, who said, don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. The usage of the Holy Spirit, or maybe you say the role of the Holy Spirit in the church or nation of Israel became different because the old covenant was fulfilled in Christ and the new covenant, every believer gets the Holy Spirit. And it's the same with the other, other laws, the ceremonial laws and civil laws in the Bible. Those things aren't abrogated. Those things are fulfilled in Christ. So think along in terms of that. Because listen, from an apologetic standpoint, some internet atheist or some somebody who some dude who thinks he's smart, I found the contradiction in the Bible. No, you didn't. 
You found somebody on the internet who said he found the contradiction in the Bible. When we've had this text, I mean the New Testament we've had for 2,000 years. Two, I mean, well, not quite 2,000. I think that, I think Thessalonians dates to the 50s. So let's let's not let's not exaggerate. 1900 and it's 50, 23, 1973 years. We've had this for 1973 years. We've had the Old Testament even longer. You just found the contradictions. Congratulate. Congratulations, Internet guy. So this person comes to you and make, puts you in a position to make a, a defense for, uh, for your faith, and you give the Sunday school answer that I just gave you. In the Old Testament, the believers or the Old Testament saints got the Holy Spirit temporarily for a specific task, whereas New Testament saints get it forever and God tabernacles with them because the tabernacle's gone. God lives in you. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Or temple of, yeah, temple of God, temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's God. That's the Sunday school answer. In fact, when I starting, started reading Candace's question and comments, half of you, probably more, said, oh, you could, you, could, you could lose the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. You can't lose it in the New. Boom. You already knew the answer before I said anything. Because it's just straight up Sunday school learning. As preachers mention it in a, in a, in a aside in sermons. But then, Mr. Smart Internet says, well, hold on. I guess God abrogated the Bible. I guess he changed his mind. You're no different than the Mormons in the Koran. You're just making it up as you go along. It contradicts. Oh, and I'm like, hey, 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 hey. You don't understand the meta-narrative of Scripture because you read the Bible for the purpose of disproving it. The difference between devotionally reading the Bible, academically reading the Bible, and skeptically reading the Bible for the purposes of falsifying it. If you want to falsify something, you will find a reason to do it. As tenuous as it may be. But if you read all of Scripture and study the Scripture, you say, oh, there's this giant meta-narrative there that's all about Christ saving his people from Old Testament to New People. Old Testament to New Testament. So you not only have to, listen, you got to understand theology. How do you understand theology? From the Bible. How do you understand the Bible? Well, the Holy Spirit's one, the first capacity of Scripture, but then you got to understand genre. You got to read things right. You need to consider the context and background of David's sin with Bathsheba. You need to remember what happened with Saul. You need to understand that it's a poem. Then you need to understand that the way things were done in the old, co uh, the old covenant are not done that way anymore. Not because it's been abrogated, but because it's been fulfilled. A had to happen before B. So B happened, we don't have to do A anymore. You have to understand the relationship from the Old Testament to New Testament while understanding that poems are not always literal while epistles are. 
translate between the genres, if you will. So there is the answer. No. You can't lose the Holy Spirit. But there's how to get there. That is how to get there. And what I want for all of you Christian commuters is to be able to get there. Because you can make an answer yourself or tell somebody to listen to this podcast, which is probably now an hour and a half long. Let me see. This, this section alone is 31 minutes. I, th- I think this is a, like an 80-minute podcast now. They're not going to do that, but they might listen to you. Okay. If that doesn't work, sing them the answer to the tune of Coldplay. I don't know. In the long run. There you go. Ooh, I'm going to get you in the long run. That's what it's about. Jesus is going to get you in the long run. That's the meta narrative. You fall in Genesis, it's however many thousand years later, and the world ain't ended yet. But in the long run, you're reconciled with the Father through the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the long run. And the Bible is about the long run. Not one isolated verse in one genre against another isolated verse in another genre. Understand the long run. Oh, you know what? I could have made a whole show out of that. Anyway. I'm almost to work, and I'm done. I guess I will have to... splice this in somehow to the show where I recorded yesterday. So now, this will be spliced into the middle. So I I did the Bible chapter review, and then I'm splicing this in. So now we go seamlessly back to yesterday and it's time to talk about the show topic which was uh, ooh vetting missions That's the point of the story. You know why that we can know? Because it's already in another part of Matthew. And speaking of serving one another in the community, let's seamlessly transfer to today's show topic, vetting missions opportunities. Vetting missions opportunities. From time to time at your local church, you will probably get a, an email or an announcement saying, our church needs volunteers to go do XYZ. And it's not necessarily, I'm just going to say in this case, it's not a usual ministry of your church. It's something that somebody needs help with temporarily. So think about the ministries of your church or any given church. The Godless PCA comes to mind. The Godless PC USA liberal, egalitarian, pro-homosexual, doesn't believe the Bible, lady pastor and scare quotes, wicked Presbyterian church in Cartersville has a meal every Thursday night that anybody can come to. It's a fellowship meal. And they just go. They just give you food, and you can sit around and eat together. 
You don't have to be Presbyterian. You don't have to be saved or lost. You just, they're going to feed you. And that's a ministry of their church. They want to feed hungry people. Good for them. Right across the street from the PC USA evil wicked lady pastor church and scare quotes is the local Anglican church. I want to call it the Church of the Red Door because that's what people call it colloquially. First time I ever pronounced that word right. Mark it down, 552 on whatever day today is. Uh, church of the Ascension, I think, is its real name. And it's a little Anglican church. And out the back, they have a little refrigerated box truck. And I think every at least every Tuesday, I, I don't know the other day that they do it, they hand out groceries to people. So again, feeding people is a regular ministry of that church. And Tabernacle has a feeding program too. If you, if you were thinking about people who actually believe the Bible and the gospel, well, that's just on, right on the other side of downtown. Okay. So you can think of all the different ministries to the community, the visible church and beyond, that local churches do. And if, you're ch if your church is doing one of these ministries, it's probably because everybody in the church decided it was a good idea and made it a part of their regular ministry. But from time to time, local churches will be invited to take place in a ministry of some affiliate group. Whether it's going to some mission church in another town and doing something for them uh what they always do in the summertime around here is that we're going to we're going to go to a mission in i don't know kentucky and we're going to put a new roof on a church because you know this church needs a roof and we need some cheap labor come on kids it's a mission trip not that anybody knows how to fix the roof and i'll give you an example that i did one time i don't know if the ministry is still active but there was a ministry in Cartersville, parachurch ministry called Second Genesis Ministries. And it, I, I would say it's akin to a halfway house. Not necessarily for convicts, just for guys with drug problems or drinking problems who had become homeless. And this place gave them a place to live while they could get a job and get their lives together. And they'd get mentors. Uh, I remember... Uh, they got. They, I went and spoke there about taxes once because these guys had jobs and they probably didn't know anything about taxes. I went there and spoke about taxes and stewardship to them, and they all had jobs at the chicken factory in Rockmart. Because uh, it's kind of a symbiotic relationship. That the chicken factory need cheap, cheap labor that you don't have to be qualified for and that you have to be desperate enough to do. Because working with live chickens is horrible. Working with fresh dead chickens is horrible. I've done it. It's bad. All right. And the other thing they did, like on weekends, they would make little lunch bags or they would make a meal, like, you know, green beans and a piece of ham, and they drive to Atlanta on a bus that they had. And they needed people to go to where the homeless showed up. So I don't, know, I don't know if you guys know this, but if there's food given out somewhere, homeless people just show up there. And you listen, you don't know until you've worked in any kind of homeless ministry, whether it's a day or a long time, 
like how where the homeless people are, how close to you they are. I'll never forget doing a, some other homeless ministry with a friend of mine in Chattanooga, and I was doing it as part of a seminary project, and I was riding around with him, handing out dinners. And we made the dinners at this church in East Ridge, and then we just drive out. And we're going to all these places around Chattanooga. And like Jimmy, that was my friend's name, he still does it, I think. He's also a firearms instructor. Uh, Jimmy would just go out in the woods 50 yards off of a strip mall. You're at Zaxby's or a McDonald's. And out in the woods, there's a tent. And it's a homeless settlement. And there might be 10 of them, there might be two. He just knew where they were. And they're everywhere. But Second Genesis would go down to Atlanta, and they knew the day that the food got given out. And they'd go hand it out. Well, you need a staff and crew to do this. And it was usually what some people did every Saturday, but they would, they, that's, you know, if, if their Saturday was I hand out food to homeless people in Atlanta, well, they're not going to find people to do that every Saturday. They're going to need people to come in for one week and then somebody else is going to do it. So a lot of times what, the, what they would do is, all right, we're going to go to the Baptist Association and the Baptist Association is going to ask, say, Atco Baptist, then it's going to ask First Baptist, then it's going to ask Tabernacle, then it's going to ask uh, Liberty Square. And out of those churches of 1,500 people, we'll get enough volunteers to go do it for this Saturday. So it's sort of like they, they need a rotation of congregations with which to draw... I'll, I'll call it missions labor for. So this is what I mean by missions that are outside of your church's regular ministry. So your church's regular ministry could be, well, we're going to feed people, and we have a feeding kitchen. But going on the second Genesis bus from White to Atlanta and delivering, uh, delivering the homeless people meals next to the Greyhound station is what, not what we do every week or every month when we do this. And I think a lot of people see these advertisements come through and say, oh, I'm, not, I'm busy, I'm not going to do it. I think that's what most people do. I'm not doing that. I'm going to the Alabama game, sorry. <laughs> I'm not going to go feed people. Uh, and But they know that. It's like Gene Simmons asking for somebody to spend the night with him. You, you ask a thousand women, you're going to get one. Especially if you're a rock star. And I imagine you guys second pick to Paul Stanley, if we're being honest. Gene Simmons is hideous. With or without the makeup. But anyway, this is... What, what other Christian podcast, produced in a car or not, can you get an opinion on which pagan rocker is more attractive to the ungodly loose women who are groupies around the rock scene. I can't think of another, but there you go. So what the churches do is they ask a thousand people and they'll get somebody, okay? Now, if you're not going to go, you're not going to go. Who cares? Like, if somebody presents at church the, the, the missions opportunity to me. Sort of call it an ad hoc missions opportunity. 
If I'm not going to go, I'm not going to say anything about it. What do I care? I'm not going. If somebody wants to go, let them go. I'm not going to certainly, like, be the cold water committee and rain on somebody's parade. Somebody says, Seth, do you want to go to the Alabama and Tennessee game? No, but let me tell you why that you're wasting your money on a ticket and what the score is going to be and what's wrong with both programs. No, just have fun. Have fun. But don't do this. Don't just say, well, the church sent me an email. Or put something on the projector screen during announcement time. Therefore, it must be good. And whatever church we're partnering with must be orthodox and on the up and up. I was in Sunday school a few months ago. And it was... Somebody made a special announcement. We, we need to pray for this new church in Atlanta. And it's a church plant. And so-and-so knows so-and-so somebody working with it. Let's pray for him. And, you know, skeptical Seth, I'm sitting there like, what are the odds that a new church planted in, a, in Atlanta is a church I would want to pray for is orthodox and does things the quote-unquote right way? I think they're pretty low. And I, the, 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 we just prayed for him. Well, don't endorse the book if you ain't read it. I remember thinking that. Like, why are we just praying something for this church? They could have a lady pastor. They could be seeker sensitive. I don't know anything about them, but so-and-so asked me to pray for them. Well, so-and-so a discerning person or not? Because listen, we all have people that we go to church with or in our Sunday school class that don't have a lick of discernment, but they, they mean well. So you have these people in your church who mean well, and they don't have a lick, lack of a lick, a lick of discernment. They have a lack of discernment. In other words, they don't have a lick of discernment, and they're just going to go because the church sends the email. Hey, we need this. Somebody has approached us from the outside. Now, who's going to approach your local church, local Baptist association, somebody from the state Baptist association, etc.? Some affiliate that you have, or some local parachurch organization. My question to you is, do you see that email and you just go? Or do you actually vet the organization? Should you be partnering with that organization? Who runs that organization? Where does their money go to? Why are they doing what they're doing? Is their work beneficial? Because I'm going to tell you this. I think of a lot of people who are the announcement the announcers and mission ministers at church, they just get the request from the association or the state convention or whoever and pass it along. And they say, well, this is vetted because it's Southern Baptist. If I hear it's from the Southern Baptists, I'll be like, all right, they probably believe very similar to, to we do, but there's probably some crooked person somewhere who's awful running it. Like, if I heard of a ministry from NAM, the North American Mission Board, I'd be like, no, I don't want anything to do with the North American Mission Board. No thanks. Because of what I know about the North American Mission Board. And I'm telling you, the guys advertise, who are leading a lot of these churches, maybe yours, they know what I know about the North American Mission Board, but they depend, I guess, on the church not knowing. And... They don't tell the guy no. They'll be, all right, yeah, I'll pass it along. And then they find the free labor pool for that week 
and then they move on to some other church, the whoever's asking for the help. But if when the, when these say temporary missions assignments come your way, it's an opportunity number one to do something good for the Lord, to do something, either for a poor goat or to the least of one of Jesus's brethren. It's an opportunity to do that. It is an opportunity to carry out the good works that He's prepared from you for you before the foundation of the world. So let me say, if it's worthwhile doing. It's worthwhile for you to learn more about it because maybe some of your time, talent, and treasure should go there not just when they ask, but every week or every month or every couple weeks as much as you have time because it's a joy to help others. I think some people go do mission, mission work with poor people or refugees and it depresses them because you th- they think oh man these people don't have anything and I bought a six dollar dollar cup of coffee on the way here and I paid twelve hundred dollars for the dog who lives in my backyard and these people got, they ain't got nothing I think I think people go to Walmart and get depressed because I me personally I gotta need it then and need it bad if if I'm going to Walmart there's a price I pay, and I gladly pay it by not going to Walmart because I can't stand to go there. Because everybody goes to Walmart. And I'm trying not to seem like a jerk, but I live in a neighborhood that has a pool and a clubhouse and tennis courts, and the houses are almost all made out of brick. And you have to pay 400 no, it was a $700 a year to live there which is over $50 a month. It's close to $60 a month. I'm not going to do the math. And not everybody can afford that. That's where I want to live. That's who I want to associate with, and I want to shop with them at Publix. Okay? I, I don't want to go to the slop buffet. People think this is the real treat. I'm going to the slot buffet for $15 and I'm going to get me some sirloin steak. It's just because they don't dress like me. They don't have the same maybe manners as me. Okay? From an economic standpoint, they're at a different class than me. So I think a lot of people go to someplace like Walmart and be like, ugh, ugh, everybody shops here. I want to go back to Publix. Not trying to be a jerk, but that's why Publix is more expensive and, quote-unquote, those people don't go to Publix, okay? That's how the world works. That's how it is. I, when, I, when I go to Walmart, I'm like, hey, look, I'm better off than 8 out of 10 people here. Kind of a cheer. I was having a bad day. I was like, man, why am I gonna, you know, how am I going to pay for this? I'm like, well, feeling pretty good. And I think People feel pretty good for the most part when they do missions. Not because they're like, I got more and they got less, but because God has given me this opportunity to be a blessing to someone else and here I am fulfilling what he said in Matthew 25. I am in service of the king. Because your Christian life is ultimately in service to the king. So when you see that periodic missions opportunity 
and you see that you really and truly are in service to the king by affiliating and partnering with this other church or this other group, you have the opportunity to come together more. But if you're not vetting it, you could just be helping to perpetuate something stupid. Because we want to be stewards of our time. And we just know from statistics that every missions opportunity or missions process or, uh, or outfit undertaking, that's the word I'm looking for. Every missions undertaking is, isn't necessarily good. So I'll give you an example. This is seminary learning. Okay. We were studying Christian ministries. We were reading a book about it. I think it was in my Christian ethics class, which is a weird book for an ethics class. And the name of the book is When Helping Hurts. When Helping Hurts. And it was written from some guys at the Covenant Seminary on top of Lookout Mountain. And those will be PCA guys. And the author gave an example of some missionaries who went to one of these backwater uh, countries. I think it was South America. And they didn't have a lot of food. You know, some village somewhere. And they had led a hard agrarian life. And they bought them a tractor. They bought them farm equipment. And they said, guys, this is going to reduce your labor of farm, ten, farming tenfold. You're not, you're not going into giant fields and digging it with a hoe. Yeah, this is going to allow you to grow so much food. It's going to give you time to rest, give you time to learn. Here's your tractor. And they went back a year later. They were still hoeing in the dirt. And the tractor was sitting there gathering dust. They said, why aren't you using the tractor? They said, well, we don't know how to fix it. They didn't have the resources. Maybe for, I don't know if they, gas, like, you got a tractor. Well, yeah, now you need gas. And it's going to break. And now you need to know how to fix it. And it's the only one you have. People who don't have tractors in their society don't know how to fix tractors. So they actually wasted their time and ultimately God's time and money on buying a tractor for people who couldn't even use it. There's a lot of well-meaning people in missions work. I think there's a lot of scoundrels who are trying to take your money, like televangelists, okay? Who do very little good. Think about the, the great example is when the person calls you, hey, yeah, I'm from the so-and-so county sheriff's police fund, and I, we need you to help us donate. Now, what does that police fund do? Oh, that police fund buries a police officer and pays for his funeral when he dies. They give money to his widow and kids. The Fraternal Order of Police, that's what they do. Now, is the Fraternal Order of Police calling you? No. It's some company in New Jersey who contracted with the Fraternal Order of Police, and they did the math to say, Fraternal Order, if you try and raise it yourself, you'll get $100,000 a year. But if you let us do it and take an 80% commission, and only get 20 of what we do, you'll get $200,000 a year. There's plenty of people out like, your money is not really going to where it's supposed to be. It's just some scam. Yeah, so there's scammers and there's, I want to call them clock punchers, who should probably quit the ministry, but they need to find something to do with somebody else's money. That's out there. And I'm going to tell you this. This is going to get presented to your church.
Because they're presenting to everybody. Hey, partner with us. Hey, partner with us. I'm not saying dismiss everything out of hand. I'm just saying vet it. Number one, if it's good, it's an opportunity for you to bless others. Which is, I mean, and it's a blessing to yourself to help other people. Especially when you don't tell anybody about it. Because it's just between you and God. And, and serve with your fellow church members as a team. Together, there's fellowship in that. Like how soldiers on the battlefield have fellowship. There is fellowship in serving in a unit to do good. Fighting the, the kingdom of darkness and Satan's kingdom, if you will. But there's also a lot of ways to be well-meaning and waste your time. So, so vet it. You don't want to waste your time when there's something better you could be doing. Now, is God God mad at you if, if, if your church says, here, you have an opportunity to do this, and you're, you're just a enthusiastic, I'll do it, because you, you do every event the church does, and you go everywhere they say to go. No, it's fine. If you, I think if you mean well, because you set out to serve the least of the brethren, good for you. But how many of us in our life have meant well, and it turns out we were making mistakes? And, you know, once again, I'm not trying to be skeptical, Seth. But how much time does it, does it take to Google these people? Like, Google their church. Listen to one of their sermons in the car. Don't turn off my show to listen to their sermon. Read what they say or their critics say. Are there any Christian, are there any uh, dissenter articles, articles about them? Stuff like that. Before you make a commitment and who you partner with... Just vet them. And I really think a lot of us never think about this. Because we say, well, somebody who works at the church says that they do this. He's going to vet them. That guy, that guy ain't vetting it. He's not. I'm just telling you, he's not. Nine times out of ten, he's got other stuff to do and he just sends out the email. Or puts it in the, in the announcement book. Because you're already affiliated or associated somehow with the people who are doing it. Who wants to be said, like, no, I'm not doing that mission. And, and, and think about this. Like, even in this town, if you drive by Cross Point City Church, and if it was on fire, dot, 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 and nobody was in the building, if it was on fire, I would not urinate on it to put it out. Okay? I wouldn't. I, I literally mean that. Okay? If there were no lives at stake, and it, ca it caught on fire... I don't even know how fast I'd call 911, but I guess I'd call it fast because it could catch another building on fire. So just purely to love my neighbor, I would call 911 because I guess that's the right thing to do. But if that place burnt down, I'd be like, good riddance. I hope you don't ever rebuild and you just go away. Or I don't even really want them to go away because it'll be horrible somewhere else. But outside, if you drive by there, they have like a bus and it's like cross point compassion ministry so i don't know what you get on the bus or if they drive and hand out food or if the bus is a dentist office and they do dental work for poor i have no idea but what they're doing is they're out helping people and doing something good guys there's a there's a guy i know who's a muslim and he takes orphans out to mexican food every week and they all get excited to go to Los Arcos. The Catholic Church 
has fed and clothed untold millions of people over the years over the whole globe. But they still have an, uh, a gospel that's anathema. Okay? They still twisted the scripture. Okay? So, whether you're good or bad, religiously, biblical or unbiblically, religiously, you can still do something good. And I'm sure that all the people Crosspoint helps don't care that I think it's bad because they need the help and Crosspoint's the one giving it to them. They're appreciative of that. Do you think I want to be the guy who sits back and says, like, Crosspoint and their bus can burn? No, they're helping people and the people need the help. But what does that do in the minds of the people being helped and the observers? Something good is being done for, for me and it comes from Crosspoint. Or I see Crosspoint doing something good in the community. Maybe I should check that place out. If I'm a local, if I'm a local church leader or a local church member here in town, and they say, hey, can you come help us with this and partner with us in this ministry? No. Because even though what you're doing is good, I don't want anybody to think that you are representing Christ on earth because you're awful. I think you're website orthodox. I don't want anybody on the outside to see you're doing Matthew 25, 37, 38, 39, 36, 35 work, and then they go inside, go, you're truly God's people, and then they're playing reckless love with their light show band. Guys, that, that's why I get so torqued out of shape with this light show band stuff. It matters. What's going on inside and out matters because we're representing Christ. When you do something good, God prepared that for you to do. Every good thing the Christian does, every good work that we perform is not salvific, but it's ordained by God. And I don't think God ordained anybody to do anything at Crosspoint. So what I'm saying is, you can be well-meaning. But you don't want to partner with somebody in your being well-meaning and ultimately represent Christ with somebody who doesn't really represent Christ. By the way, I'm not saying everybody at Crosspoint is lost. I just wish their building would burn down and their influence would be gone. Because I think they're ultimately, as a, a church community, detrimental to the kingdom. Because they're sort of like sort of like Andy Stanley in North Point. I bet North Point's giving away ten million dollars to help people. Burn down. You're awful, Andy Stanley. You're a wolf. So is it asking too much to vet the people? And let's try and come up with some biblical support instead of just my opinion. Oh, I'm well. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna use the the Old Testament as an object lesson. This, if you, if you don't think I'm a Baptist preacher, listen to 
this. Joshua and the children of Israel were ordered to go to the promised land and kill everybody and take their land. Because the, the iniquity of the Canaanites was complete. And they were supposed to finish the exodus and victoriously go into the promised land. Joshua in the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. God, Joshua in the battle of Jericho when the walls came tumbling down. Good morning. I'm not going to do the rest of the song. Let me tell you about Joshua. All right. Joshua, Yeshua in the Hebrew, same name as Jesus, which is Jesus in the Greek. Or no, is that? No, that's it. What is it in Aramaic? Is it Jesus in the Aramaic? Or is it, I think it's Jesus in the Greek. Anyway, nobody called him Yeshua. Because they spoke Aramaic and wrote in Greek, not, uh, not Hebrew. Anyway, that's a, that's a rabbit trail of a rabbit trail. Do you remember what happened? Israel went tearing through the desert, beating people who faced them. Then they went to Jericho and utterly destroyed Jericho, except for Rahab and her family. Then they went to Ai. They lost the battle because they were unfaithful. I had sin in the camp. Then the sin issue got dealt with, and then they crushed Ai. Is it I or Ai? I don't know. And when they showed up, there, the border of the promised land, the people were terrified. Even Rahab said it. We've heard what you did. So these real smart guys changed clothes out of their good clothes to their old clothes, clothes so they looked ragged, messed up their hair, and went out to meet Joshua and said, please do not destroy us. We are sojourners. We're not from here, but we are here. If you let us live, we'll be your servants. And Joshua does not consult with the Lord. He says, fine. He does not what? He does not vet these men. He just takes their word for it. Because they look like they're telling the truth. And what did the truth turn out to be? They were Canaanites. They are people he was supposed to kill. But now he can't go back on his word. Because he made an oath with them. Instead of vetting and then taking action and vetting somebody with God, just like we would vet somebody's activities against God's word, he just did it. Just whatever he thought he should do. Don't make that same mistake. Vet the missions. And by the way, your church saying, oh, let's go do it, is not proper vetting. Because... Some people just don't do a good job at that these days. Thanks for listening to The Christian Commute. Lord willing, I'll be back with you again tomorrow. As always, God bless. And as always, remember, Christianity is not about getting saved. That's done. 8 Thanks for listening to The Christian Commute. For those of you who want to send Please send your questions Bye. about Christian apologetics and theology to SethDunn88 at gmail.com. If you are not a Christian, please remember that you can be reconciled to God through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent of your sins now and accept Jesus as Lord. God bless.